give what you can. Because sometimes people can't give everything for whatever reason, but then also try to learn from it. And so, you know, as I say, don't make the perfect enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. In today's episode, we're going to draw together themes from a couple of different series that we've been working on over the last few months. One of these was on the intersection of whiteness and parenting, and the other more recent one has been on the intersection of money and parenting. And one common theme across both of these topics is the idea of seeing someone who's different from you as somehow other than you. And so I'm deeply honored today to welcome Dr. John Powell, who is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights and civil liberties. Dr. Powell is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, which supports research to generate specific prescriptions for changes in policy and practice that address disparities related to race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, disability, and socioeconomics in California and nationwide. Dr. Powell is professor of law and also professor of African-American studies and ethnic studies at UC Berkeley, and is the author of the book, Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concepts of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society. Welcome, Dr. Powell. Nice to be here, Jen. And so I should also add that uh, we scheduled this interview way back in February because your calendar is absolutely bananas. And we're just now talking here at the beginning of May. And so to put this in context, when we scheduled this in February, COVID-19 was something that was happening in China and really didn't seem to affect us very much or like it was going to affect us very much. And here in May, obviously, (laughs) we're in a very different situation. And so I think our conversation today is going to be even more powerful with this additional context of othering that we're seeing related to things like attacks on Asian Americans here in the U.S., as well as undercounting the number of Native Americans who have the virus, and how the whole world is basically shut down for an illness that's killed a small fraction of the number of people that die of real diseases and tuberculosis kill every year, although obviously the people that those diseases typically kill is very different from the people who are seeing the highest numbers of COVID-19 cases. So I'm sure our discussion today is going to be against this backdrop, and I think it makes it even more timely and uh, even more compelling to listen So so I wonder if we could maybe start with a definition, because othering is, I'm guessing, is a term that's not going to be so familiar to many of my listeners. So can you start by grounding us a little bit and and telling us about what is othering, please? Sure. So there's, as you would expect, there are many different ways of thinking about othering and the flip side of belonging, which we'll get to, I guess, shortly. Mm -hmm. Certainly will. (laughs) It comes from many different disciplines, from healthcare from sociology, from psychology, from philosophy, from feminist studies, from political science. Each one has a slightly different variation as to how they talk about it. But one way of thinking about it is just when you 
do not accept someone else's full humanity and full equality. To use Judith Butler's concept is people are not seen as grievable or when people don't count or in some way they're less than. So it could be because there are different levels of othering. You can, uh, you can think of othering between a husband and wife, but you're not going to have genocide in that context. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas when you have extreme othering of some groups, it also can bleed into gen- genocide. And this othering that's exploitive. So Irish Young made the observation that to be superfluous is worse than to be exploited. Because when you're superfluous, you can be subject to genocide. But when you're exploited, mm-hmm. you're not likely to suffer genocide. You're still suffering. Mm-hmm. Because you have a use to somebody. Right. So there are different yeah. forms of othering. But the, the, the sort of broad way of thinking about it is when someone is seen as less than, fully equal, uh, less than mutual. And it can add to that, like maybe a threat uh, in some sense or indifferent. So those are some, some ways of thinking about it. Okay. And so I'm trying to think about this from a, from a psychological perspective and thinking about, we've talked a long time ago now about how social groups form and, and a big part of it seems to be about creating this difference in your mind between what is me, what is myself. And to understand that you have to have something to compare it to, some kind of other. How do you integrate that psychological aspect into the definitions of othering that you work with? Well, the psychological definitions tend to be individualistic. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas some other definitions, certainly when I talk about Judith Butler or when I talk about sociology, Steve Marr, not, they're not psychological in that sense, in the sense that one of the preconditions to think about othering is when you think about group othering, there does seem to be a mind is set to actually categorize and differentiate, which is, mm-hmm. and out of that comes the concept of in groups and out groups. But there's a lot of, to suggest that there's no stability in in groups and out groups, that people move in and out. And when when we're talking about othering, uh, we're largely talking about it at a group level, not at an individual level. And there's no natural other. I mean, that's the mistake I think that a lot of the psychological literature suggests, that you see someone that's different. And uh, as uh, the dean of Harvard Law School wrote a book called What Difference Does a Difference Make? So the psychological literature seems to suggest that there's natural others, you know, and we seem mm-hmm. to think those natural others, the natural othering process fall along certain well-traveled categories like race, gender, mm-hmm. uh, and that's clearly wrong. There's no natural other and there's no natural group. And part of that comes from a misunderstanding of our history. And so we think about, we organized in tribes. And so in tribes, we had intimate contact with uh, anywhere from 50 to 150 people. And that was it. And everyone else was an outgroup and potentially either a threat or indifferent. But when we talk about whiteness, for example, we're not talking about 50 people. So that the, the two million years that we spent in tribes, there was no concept of whiteness and people weren't organized around whiteness. They were organized around proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and race as we know it is relatively new, a few hundred years old. And then the capacity to actually define someone as a in-group is a sociological process. It's not a, in that it may build on a psychological tendency. But for example, there are uh, over 1 billion Christians. They'll never see each other. They have different languages. They're a different race. But in some sense, they think of themselves as a group. They identify as a group. There's uh, 300 and 
40 million Americans. And so why is that a group? That's, that has almost nothing to do in a deep sense with 50 people, right? This very different mm-hmm. process. And so it's not that I see a person who is a different race than me and then I, a whole bunch of things happen. It's that I've actually been constituted in such a way, not on my own behalf, uh, not on my own efforts entirely. In fact, a lot of it is, it's pre-given. So for example, prejudice can only really exist when there's already a structure and a language and a grammar for prejudice that's not the individual. So there's a little tension between the way psychologists approach it and the way sociologists and others approach it. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I wanted to pick up in what you said was that we sort of assume that these are essentialist categories, that I'm one thing or I'm another thing. And actually, we create these categories, right? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the immigration of Irish people who were not initially considered white in the U.S. <laughs> when they first came over. And so what are some of the other ways that you see this? You know, we think these are essentialist categories, but actually they're not in any way essentialist. Right. And, and sort of interesting question. I, I've written a little bit about this. So as you suggest, essentialist sort of will locate something in the person. It's just, it's in your biology, it's in your nature, can't mm-hmm. change. We have largely moved to an anti-essentialist posture uh, in the sense that there are very few, if any, essential categories. And even if they were essential, the meaning is not essential. Uh, so when I was growing up, initially race was considered essential. And you read stuff from the 1950s and 60s, and race is talked about as being biological and essential. And then some people would take that biological understanding of race and then attribute certain characteristics to it. As that started to melt away or become contested, people shifted and said, okay, race is not essential or biological is sociological, but gender, aha, now that is. <laughs> and they're only, you know, you're man or woman, you know? Yeah. And people, some people early on said, well, that's not quite true. You can be more. And now, of course, people don't think of gender uh, or gender roles as essential as all at all. And there's no clear, even biology associated with it. You have transgender. And so, again, in terms of the academy uh, people question if there's anything that's essential. Now, the mistake that people make with that is that they then assume, because if we're not essential, and if we're if these categories are sociological and created, can we step outside of these categories and live in some way in which there are no categories? And that seems pretty wrong. Um, mm. And the categories don't have to be as rigid, and they can be multiple, and they can be fluid, and we can influence them. But the way the mind works and the way we work as people, we're always in relationship. And we need some categories to actually negotiate the world. Uh, we simply take in too much information. And another way of saying that is that all of our interactions are mediated. Uh, we have no direct interaction with the world or with each other or even with ourselves. It's sort of an interesting person, my experience. And when they say that, they assume they're talking about some unmediated, unfiltered uh, phenomenon. But most people who look at this carefully would say there's no such thing, that the very concept of perception is already structured, but it's not essential. So it can be restructured, and there are things we can do to shift it, but we can't simply step outside and have what people call a God's eye view and just see the world as it is. 
Yeah. And so when we start to think about things that we could do that are different from othering, one potential way we could think about it is, well, I've seen it referred to as saming. You know, we, we could just say, well, we're going to treat everybody equally. Why is that a bad idea? Well, it's, it's, first of all, it doesn't work. <laughs> and in some ways, it's, uh, it's basically saying in order for me to treat you as a full human being, you have to become some version of me. Mm. And that's better than saying you're categorically different and I can never understand you and therefore I can do all these terrible things to you. It's like, so I have this, this thing. It's like, because we are both the same and different, dialogue is necessary and possible. And what it means by that, if we were just the same, dialogue wouldn't be necessary. I don't need to talk to you if I'm the same. Mm -hmm. I don't need to ask you how you feel. You already know. <laughs> you, know you know, it's like, what would I feel? Jen feels exactly as I would feel because she's an extension of me. And the other right. is that because if we're totally different, the infinite other, uh, as Hegel talks about, then I couldn't understand. And so it's, it's, life is a little bit more messy. The other thing that's sort of interesting and I find very fascinating is that the process of, so the process of saming in some ways an erasure. You know, it's like, and it's, it's actually kind of the liberal response to, the categorical differences that we made in the past, like blacks or women, it's like, no, we're all the same. And that all the same, the person speaking generally is the dominant group. And so then in order to be a member of society, it means I have to adhere to whatever the dominant group considers to be the necessary thing. And so if you think about something like uh, Bill Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can join the military and kill people just like anybody else. But we don't want to hear about your sexual exploits. But if I'm heterosexual, I'm a cis as a heterosexual man, I can brag about my sexual exploits. So even in that formulation, you're saying one group can show up and beat myself on the chest for how many sexual exploits I have. But if you're homosexual, we don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> different. And so the goal is not to be treated the same. In fact, the idea of equality from the Western concept comes from Aristotle. And Aristotle understood that there were two different forms of equality. One he calls arithmetic and one he calls geometric. And arithmetic is when, we, when people are situated the same. And he says, basically, to treat people who are situated the same is fair or teach people or situated the same differently is unfair. But when people are not situated the same, to treat them as if they were the same, doesn't make any sense. So we got half of Aristotle's insights and not the other half. Mm. Yeah. And it seems as though a lot of what you're speaking to is sort of getting at the idea of denying people agency. And I think I see that a fair bit in the parenting world. You know, I'm obviously white and a lot of people who are talking about parenting are <laughs> white and schools, I think, are very much geared for the success of middle class white children. And, you know, in the parenting sphere, it's, it's really common to hear about children needing protection. And often there are specific groups of parents. They're usually, you know, black or brown, low socioeconomic status. And these parents don't care about their children's education in some way. And in doing that, we're kind of removing, we're constructing a narrative where we really remove agency from these individuals. And we say, well, the school knows best or the state knows best. And if only you parented like middle-class white parents did, then your children would be so much better off and, and so much better able to succeed in the world. How do you relate what we've been talking uh, about so far to parenting and the parenting world? Well, it's actually interesting on a number of levels. Uh, I mean, even the construction of the family, right? It's a, it's a 
relatively new phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the idea of the nuclear family yeah. is not older, it's a few thousand years old, but it's not a basic human trait. <laughs> right. in the way that we organize the family. Right. And and just to pause on that for a second, I think it is assumed that the way that we, when I say we, you know, <laughs> middle-class white families organize the family around two parents, a certain number of children, probably living at some distance from grandparents, that that is how families are. Right. And that that is what you're saying is that that is not the case at all. Right. And, and in fact, yeah. there's interesting anthropological literature that suggests that anyway, that we're doing it wrong. That in, we're doing it in, the, in a way that we actually evolve, we evolve not to have the nuclear family. Yeah. There's some ex, uh, some examination of grandparents and all that. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it's sociological. We sort of have cultures, we have expressions, which is conflated with race, but it's not the same as race. But even, you know, it's sort of hard to get to a ground. And I know we're trying to do that. But if you think about, I mentioned Judith Butler, she wrote in Gender Trouble. She writes that, the way we talk about agency is not only Western and white, it's also male. And so we, again, assert agency mainly in the context of a freestanding separate individual, that I can do what I want to do or I have the capacity of will. If you go back to psychology, which you mentioned earlier, it's like it's a, it's a peeling an onion. So where does the will come from? What does, I mean, at a deeper level, where does the I come from? And so... What uh, Butler says is that there's agency, but it's not the same as conceived of in terms of white dominant culture. That's a fiction. And she says that the human being that's described in Western literature is actually a male. And I would go further and say it's an aspiration. It's a distortion because the agency that's actually reached for is to be freestanding. For example, uh, in Western society, and this is particularly strong in the United States, dependency is seen as a negative. And so part of agency is framed in terms of the opposite of dependency. And there are different kinds of dependencies or interdependencies. But in part, because of the United States history with slavery, dependency has taken on a particularly negative connotation. So it's associated both with slavery and with uh, femaleness. And so if you look at... um, our reactions, for example, to the social safety net. We're always, even in this pandemic, it's like, well, we can't give people money because that will make them, it's a moral hazard. Mm-hmm. We can give corporations money because they don't suffer from that. Uh, or even we can give rich people money. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, poor people, you're going to make them dependent. So we, in, right. in a way, we have this really distorted way of looking at people and the capacity of people. And that's not even just whiteness, right? That's the U.S. expression of whiteness because not mm-hmm. nearly as strong in Europe or even in Canada. So I think agency has to be rethought and how do we actually have agency within relationships? How do we mm-hmm. have agency that never achieves uh, full autonomy, never yeah. achieves sovereignty, which is how we talk about agency. Yeah. Which is not, as you said, when we, when I say we, the United States took land from Native Americans and it went to this, this issue went to the Supreme Court in a, in a famous case. And the Supreme Court justified the taking of the land because they weren't using it right. And they were they had a collective relationships rather than one person owning a piece of land. And then later, they actually tried to correct this by giving Native Americans land. But they actually gave it to them as individuals instead of as a tribe. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of agency within a tribe or agencies within a uh, 
interdependent set of networks or agency in relationship with the earth, it looks very different than agency that's standing apart from everything. Yeah, for sure. And of course, that's resulted in all kinds of problems with land getting divided into ever smaller pieces on a reservation, doesn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Right. It's like, is it a problem that our children, especially today, are coming home, right? Or they're in, Mm -hmm. I mean, in many instances in the United States, we think of launching our children and then they're gone. It's like they're on their own, you know? And that's my work is done. (laughs) As a parent, I've launched this job. Yeah. And that's not yeah. the way uh, most of the societies, and that's not historically what happened. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. children were never launched. And we're seeing a lot of uh, psychological trauma associated with launching children. Uh, I teach at UC Berkeley, and they've studied as to why, for example, students of color, but all students really actually have much more stress. And one reason that's one thing's associated with it is this extreme notion of individuality which means their ability to have resiliency, which is always a collective effort. Resiliency is not an individual effort. Mm -hmm. We're stressed out when we have trauma. One of the ways we deal with is we turn to our community. Mm -hmm. There's no community to turn to. Uh, What if that makes you weak? You know, if you're a guy, if you cry, it's like, what if you be vulnerable? You know, so we have a lot of ideas that really don't serve us well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to backtrack slightly for uh, anyone who might have kind of missed the reference to the sense of self and our ideas about the sense of self. <laughs> so for some folks that might have gone over their heads, but I would just encourage you to listen back to our uh, interview with Dr. Chris Niebauer, um, who wrote the book, No Self, No Problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually <laughs> the last interview that I recorded and very much, I think, feeds into the, this discussion of what you're saying about this being a fictional idea that we have this, this sense of self. Mm-hmm. So kind of moving on a little bit, I feel like I I'm skating on thin ice here because I <laughs> I don't know exactly how to talk through this. So I'm, I'm going to look to your guidance on this. And I'm looking to your book and, and you, st- you cite statistics on poverty in your book. And I'm going to quote, you say that in 2009, 74% of Blacks did not live in poverty. And quote, there is an association of poverty and Blackness that is reinforcing, self-perpetuating and part of the racing process. And so I agree that the automatic association of Black and poor is not helpful to us. But it's also a fact that 25% of Blacks do live in poverty compared to fewer than 10% of whites. And so one thing that I really appreciate about your work and your book is that you argue against this idea of closing the gap between Blacks and whites as if what whites have and are is some kind of gold standard and everybody else needs to kind of achieve that standard and instead to have these conditions where nobody lives in poverty. But the part I really struggle with is how we can do this without addressing the systems that have created a poverty level for Blacks that is two and a half times what it is for whites. Because it seems to me that to do that, we have to talk about how the systems we have now have created these two groups unequally. So it's in my, I'm trying to get out of this space in my mind where I feel like to examine othering, it sort of feels like we have to define the other. So how do I get out of that rhetorical catch-22? Yeah, no, so it's actually a, a very nuanced issue. And we don't have, again, sort of a grammar and vocabulary easily accessible to deal with it. So I've I've written a short piece where I basically say poverty, especially in the United States, is not primarily or simply the lack of stuff. And Emeritus Sen, a noble economist from India, has written about this a lot, but it's a lack of belonging. Mm. And when you think of of not belonging, which when you talked about if the uh, the fixed or othering is not saming, what is it? It's belonging. A lack of belonging or being othered, uh, being seen less than human, 
in some ways. Susan Fiss of Princeton has done some work around this, and she has some kind of stereotype content model. First of all, she shows that being othered happens at different levels, so not everyone's othered in the same way. So, for example, and these are national samples, although she's done it in like 30, 40 different countries. Women in the United States othered in the sense that they're not seen as the same value as men, but they're liked. They're sometimes pitied. Uh, and the same with old people. It's like, you know, my uncle so-and-so, you know, I like him. So her, her two axes is liking and competence. So you don't think women are as competent as men, but you at least like them, right? Whereas mm-hmm. some group, which you think are not competent and you don't like them. Mm. Uh, that's a deep kind of othering. And when you get deep into that group, there's a part of the brain that goes off when you see another human being. And nature just thought it would be kind of cool to recognize our same species. It doesn't mean you're going to go have coffee with them or talk to them, just sort of a recognition. When you deeply other someone, that part of the brain does not light up. Hmm. And in fact, the part of the brain that does light up is the part of the brain associated with disgust. So it's a little bit of a catch-22, a chicken egg, but you can't develop effective social policies for people that you don't see as people. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply the lack of not having stuff. It's that you could say, and I've argued this in some places, is that it's a lack of belonging and not having membership. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes the fight. And it's not a single thing, right? It's not just race. It's race and gender and class and sexual orientation and. So all these things are actually in communication with each other. And in our society, we have this norm. This is what a normal person looks like. And it happens both at a conscious and unconscious level. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you don't address the condition, but I'm saying the deep condition is the condition of not belonging or only belonging provisionally. And back to our earlier conversation, it's the same kind of, it's a variation of saying. It's like, what do I need to be a healthy person? Oh, I need what white people have. Right? It's like, well, wait a minute. White people don't look so healthy to me. <laughs> but that's what you get. And that's all you get. Plus, in a funny way, it not only deepens the othering of people of color or people who are not white, it actually also diminishes whites in some way. right? Because in a very subtle way, because if you see a white person suffering, can you have empathy? Right? And my extreme example is, think of uh, Prince Harriet and Princess Meghan. Mm-hmm. You know? They literally are a princess and a prince. One's mm-hmm. white and one's mixed. And they're super rich, they're famous, they're royalty, they're young, they're beautiful. Do they suffer? Yeah. Yes. Can we take that into account? Now, not to center their suffering, not to center their, but to not ignore it either. And the other thing to sort of potentially dangerous about just sort of making it whites versus people of color, whites versus everyone mm-hmm. else, is that it leaves out the elites. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the construction of whiteness, whiteness was the middle stratum. People of color was the bottom stratum. What was the top stratum? It was the elites. Mm-hmm. And early on, did not consider themselves whites. The middle stratum had a role. The role was mm-hmm. to police and maintain the structure of racial dominance for the elites. And to have allegiance to the elites, but they were not the elites. And so oftentimes when we, we frame things just in terms of whiteness versus we forget the work that whiteness is doing as an ideology and how we should apply it. Also, we confuse the ideology with the people. You know, so you are phenotypically white, but are you performance constitutionally 
Why? I don't know. I have to know more about you. <laughs> Race is socially constructed. It can be constructed yeah. in such a way that people who are not phenotypically white are whiteness and white in their performance. And people who are phenotypically white are not white in their performance. You talked about the Irish. And so part of what it's saying is let's set a goal where everyone can achieve what we want people to achieve. When we do that, we do change conditions, but we're also not assuming the conditions we're aiming toward or aspiring to are conditions of whites. And part of what we're doing is changing the physical condition, but also changing the conditions of belonging, the conditions of Mm -hmm. the spiritual conditions, if you will, which we need to pay attention to. And the the final thing I'll say on that for now is that in changing those conditions, it's not paternalistic. It's not like I'm going to fix black people, I'm going to fix gay people. It's everyone participates in co-creating the thing that we belong to. So it's not already there. It might be saying, okay, you know, Dr. King talked about being integrated into a burning house. Well, I might say, you know what? I'm going to go outside for a while until we get that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warm enough out here. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it's a much more complicated process, but it's also a much more engaging process. Mm-hmm. It invites all of us in. And it also acknowledges yeah. that, okay, so you talk about children and families. You know, we don't want to valorize or romanticize Black families. You know, uh, we have pathology in Black families, but so do white families. So I don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily trade my pathologies in for your pathologies. Mm-hmm. No mind better. So if we're going to try to be healthy, how do we actually have that conversation? How do we think about it? And how do we come together to sort of set aspirations for our collective society? Yeah, I love that. And I think that that sort of gets to the next question that I had, which was thinking about how other people raise their children. You know, this may be one of the first times when parents in their role as parents sort of come across this topic. And I think it's not totally uncommon to see some kinds of parents as lacking in some skills related to parenting. And and we already talked about, you know, not caring about their children's education. And firstly, I mean, I think we ignore the tools that these parents do bring to their relationship with their children and that these are not valued in schools in the same way that tools and skills that other kinds of parents do bring. And secondly, there are structural reasons that can prevent them from raising their children and participating in education in the same way that middle-class white parents do, which is assumed to be the right way. And so I'm just wondering, you know, you, you sort of posed a rhetorical question, you know, how can we reimagine what it means to be part of this society? And this is a lot of the thinking that we're doing in, on the podcast right now, you know, talking with people about how do we reimagine what education looks like? And so what are some concrete things that we can do to reframe our ideas of what it means to be a good, I mean, I'm using air quotes so often. <laughs> people are watching on YouTube or seeing all my air quotes. The so people are listening on the podcast are missing out on them. Um, but what it means to be a good parent in a way that has space for these different approaches to raising children that the way we think about parenting right now just doesn't seem to have. Yeah, well, I think those all of those are important questions. And of course, the way, you know, the assumptions we have, like, uh, you know, we raise our kids and very differently and when we're all farmers. I mean, at the beginning of the, 19th century, something like 98% of the people close to that were farmers, right? So you're raising your kids for a certain world, for a certain situation. That world now is less than 2% of the people in the United States are farmers. So we are urban knights and we assume, again, I grew up in Detroit. The idea is you, hopefully your kids were, could be gainfully employed, could stay out of trouble and go to work in a factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we went away to college, and I had one of the most loving families in the world. 
the question was, why? Why are you going to college? You could stay here in the factory and get a job and make a good living and in 25, 30 years retire and be set for life, which is what most mm-hmm. of my siblings and family members did. That's not true in Detroit anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. So even the idea of education itself is being constantly be, uh, being reshaped. You know, Dewey and Jefferson, who are oftentimes considered the early architects of education and educational thinking in the United States, they talked about education as one of its primary purpose was to help us become citizens, not naturally citizens. We have to learn to take the perspective of others. That's what being a good citizen from Dewey's perspective meant. And then the ability to actually, we would say empathize, but also perspective, take the perspective of others. Well, the very nation, notion of the way in which we do race in this country prevents that. But we're not interested in the perspective of black people. We're not interested in, I mean, it's a sort of a soft assimilation. We're trying to help black people become more like white people. And then there's also a fear. And this is actually, I think, reflected in a lot of the Trump supporters, frankly, but not just them. Uh, it's actually global. The world is changing very fast. And we don't know how to prepare our children for the right future because there are too many futures at stake. or mm-hmm. There's no future. And we also operate on the assumption of scarcity. You know, there's only so many people that can go to Berkeley and so many people. Well, you know, sorry, but that's my kid, you know, so I had to push your kid off. Yeah. And, and it's, it's complicated in multiple ways. It's a book called Other People's Children, right? It's like, how much am I willing to tax myself for other people's children? And what we see across the United States and seen for the last several decades is that as the school-age population becomes more and more kids of color and immigrant kids, and the older people are still predominantly white and people with more financial resources, they are not inclined to tax themselves to pay for those kids. And that's what the book, Other People's Children. So I think we need a really sort of a whole new way of thinking about education and uh, educating. The other last thing I'll say on this is that we used to think of education as a public good. Now we think of it as a private good. Mm-hmm. And of course, it can be both or some of both. But if it's a private good, then it's mine and you know I can get it and whatever I get from going to college or whatever is mine and, and I don't have to share it and, and the government is taxing me too much as opposed to we're actually trying to create something together. Mm-hmm. So I think the secret, of course, and uh, Alper talked about this in 1954 in The Nature of Prejudice is contact. People need to have contact with each other and people like Pettigrew and others have actually built on that lend trope in terms of what is the nature of contact that creates a cohesive interdependent and healthy society. There are certain conditions. You know, you have a shared goal. uh, You have relative equality. You have uh, some cooperation. You have a need for each other. So when we, when you think of the sports, you know, like when we're on a football team, we're all trying to do the same thing. So we're different. Um, Some people are fast, some people are slow, some people are big and bulky, some people. But the shared goal creates a space where something happens that something emerges that wasn't there before. Mm. But again, notice it's not the individual. It's your, this shared, you have individual expression, quarterback and the line. And I'm sorry for the sports metaphor. <laughs> but you think the same thing in terms of the military. It's another sort of example. But we've had tremendous, by some standards, success in the military of sort of dealing with some of these hard and persistent and stubborn disparities. And again, you sort of, Put people in a space, it's like your life depends on me. 
In my life mm-hmm. depends on you. We have a common goal. Now, the goal may be a messed up goal, <laughs> but we share it. And out of that, and if you think about, you take oftentimes young white guys from the South, especially the rural South, tend to be overly conservative. You take uh, young black guys and young Latino guys from the South, but also from urban areas. You put them in, you send them a long ways away, and you give them some guns. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Right? <laughs> Why does it work? Yeah, because they have a shared goal. And shared yeah. goal, and, and they're deliberate about it. And out of this experience, oftentimes come lasting friendships. Yeah. So we can do something. Now, in terms of schools, we don't have the same kind of prerogative, right? Mm-hmm. And our neighborhoods are segregated, our schools are segregated, our lives are still very much segregated. So part of the thing is how do we actually come together uh, mm-hmm. and, and start that perspective taking and sh- have some shared goals, have some experience, build bridges, build empathy and compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. Now, the good thing is some of that's happening. So it's not all bad, but people are largely doing it on their own. They get very little help from government. They get very little help from large institutions. And basically, we tend to reduce everything to the individual. Mm-hmm. Methodological individualist uh, is what the term we use. Uses, um, and so uh, it's like, what can I do? As opposed to not only can what can we do, but how do we organize space, culture, institutions to actually mm-hmm. lend support to help us move in one direction as opposed to the other. I'm sitting yeah. in my house right now and I'm reminded because I'm looking out on my back porch, the 1940s and 50s, all the porches were in the front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. As we became more quote, you know, private, we want all the porches in the back. Right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have to interact with our neighbors so much. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that we can do this. But part of it, I think, is taking it on the language we use. And the difficult thing is when we're going upstream, swimming upstream, it takes a lot of work. So when we're going against the cultural norms, the physical practices, it feels hard. That's when we're going downstream, it's just habits. We relax and all my friends tend to look like me. All my friends tend to go to the same church. If they go to church, all my friends have the same values. Well, that's a recipe for disunity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so I wonder if we can talk through uh, briefly just some of the, the main kinds of situations that parents probably encounter this topic in. And I think the first one of, of these I'd like to touch on is related to poverty. And this came up for me when we were driving through Oakland and my then four-year-old asked, you know, why are all these people camping on the side of the road? Because she'd been camping, we'd been camping and saw, she saw the tents and, and assumed they were camping. And so it seems to me as though any effort to kind of explain why some people are poor can never be adequate because, you know, there are so many factors to include. There are always individual factors to consider as well. So I'm assuming that when we talk to our children about poverty, we should kind of describe the structural issues and not make out like, oh, it's this person that made bad choices, but also add something about our individual experiences. And I'm wondering about, you know, how do we balance not trying to be a white savior with acknowledging the other person's agency? And how does that all come together when you see a person with a cup outside the grocery store and you want to do something to help and probably just shoving a banana at them that came out of your cart is not the right thing to do. But what is it that we can do that balances their need with the need of the other people outside all the other stores I'm going to go to today as well? Well, you know, with your children, 
And my children are grown now, although I have grand and grandchild, so I have to mm-hmm. rethink some of this again. <laughs> Part of it is education. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, there were virtually all the movies, all the in this cultural expression, was basically challenging extreme wealth. So the movies were more about either working class people, even poor people, presented in a more uh, flattering way. Not mm-hmm. true today. No. <laughs> and, uh, and now we sort of, you know, oh, so-and-so has this many billions, and it's like a point of pride, right? And like, mm-hmm. oh, because this person has billions, maybe even if they don't know anything, have never done anything, they could be president. <laughs> At least have money, right? I think education can help. Help mm-hmm. us. You know, we talk in this country a lot about being race blind, which we're not and can't be. But really what we tend to be is structurally blind. Mm-hmm. And I think for children, giving them both experience, but also giving them a language, educating them. And there was a bad movie that you may have seen. It's called Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. I've heard of it. I'm not sure I've actually seen it. <laughs> yeah, take a, take a look at it. The, okay. What's brilliant about the movie is Eddie Murphy is... I guess, either homeless or semi-homeless. And Dan Aykroyd is, is a well-heeled, whatever, and works for these billionaires or whatever, yeah. and these two brothers. And one of them thinks that one's disposition in life is biological, it's essential. The other mm-hmm. one thinks it's situational. And mm-hmm. so they make a bet. And the idea is they end up trading places between Eddie Mur- and Dan Aykroyd. And they bring Eddie Murphy into this August, you know, wealthy world and make Dan Aykroyd live on the streets. And the question is, will their characteristics stay the same? And they don't. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to give you away the whole movie, but for <laughs> children, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really smart because it's saying what's going on is largely situational. But it's not really a didactically. It's like a comedy. It is a comedy, mm-hmm. right? It's showing what happens when you put people in certain situations. And then the obvious question, if you if you get that, then the question is, why do we put certain people in certain situations? If you think it's the people, then it's nothing to be done, right? If you think it's that guy's an alcoholic and the woman's a drug dealer and, you know, she's bad, maybe it's a family. Mm-hmm. So that's one. I think helping people, and I think you can help do that with kids. I think you can do very accessible stuff. The other, though, is ourselves as, as parents. And there's a lot of literature suggesting that the best one, the best ways that children learn is not simply what you tell them to do, but what they see you doing. And they had this experiment of why parents, liberal parents, wanted their children to be open to all different races and stuff. And they had modest success, but not very much. And parents were like confused. It's like, you know, I talk to my kids about kids of a different color and I take them over a different... And what they found is that a more powerful thing was if the child saw the parent having friends of a different race, that was much more powerful than telling the kids to go figure it out. (laughs) And in terms of making a mistake, what I would say is make it, Mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Because I'll give you just two quick examples. I was living in San Francisco and I went into a very upscale store. And there's this woman there who was very disabled and she had trouble negotiating the house and the sort of, cultural standard is you don't ask the disabled person if they need help that's mm-hmm. paternalistic or whatever. And so finally, I just said, forget it. I went up to her and I said, can I help you? And this woman, she said, oh, thank you. And the store is packed with people, mm-hmm. right? We're all being culturally correct by ignoring her. Mm-hmm. And then I helped her with her. The other is, um, I lived in San Francisco. I had a, a number of 
people who were homeless who uh, lived around me, and I got to know some of them. This is one woman, I'll call her Mabel. And I'd talk to her almost every day, and I'd give her some money, and we'd have a conversation, and then I'd say, so do you need anything today? And she'd say, well, I need money for food. And I'd give her money. And, and then one day I came home from a trip, and I saw some friends over by Dolores Park, and uh, we were hugging, and, yeah, good to see you. Where you been? And then they left, and then I walked on, and I saw Mabel. And I said, hi, Mabel, how are you? And she's, you know, disheveled from living on the streets for very long and smelly and all that. And, and I said, so what do you need today? And she got quiet. And said, she looked down. I said, is everything okay? I said, yeah. And I said, do you need something today? And she said, could I have a hug? Mm-hmm. I, I was, had a feeling that was what you were going to say. <laughs> I hesitated. It's like, ooh, <laughs> you might have lice and this and the other. Mm-hmm. But I did hug her mm-hmm. and told some of my friends, and they were teasing me, oh, John's girlfriend is homeless, you know. Mm-hmm. But what she was saying, she needed human contact. Yeah. You know, and she need, yeah, she needs money, she needs to eat, but she needs human contact. And I would say, without knowing, I don't know how much she benefited from that hug, but I certainly benefited from it. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Yeah, was something that was invaluable. So, yeah. yes, you're going to make mistakes because there's not a playbook. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've written, for example, about the danger of allyship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not somebody else's game I'm helping them with. This is our game. This is all of our game. Mm-hmm. We need to step into it. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be smart. We need to ask other people. And we'll make mistakes. And, and part of um, having grace and is giving us space to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I often say, I, the air is human. The nerve of air is intelligent. So I like intelligent mm-hmm. humans. So we'll, mm-hmm. you know, but not to stand back, to be so careful. And what you inferred, which I will lift up, even if you didn't mean this, is that, again, this is not poor people's problem. This is not black people's problem. This is not homeless people's problem. It is, but it's our problem. Our problem, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's not yeah. their kids. It's our kids. These are our kids. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to be, I don't want to be, have too much hubris in terms of, but when I was growing up, I grew up in Detroit, literally, you know, somebody saw you going down the street to be, put your hat on, boy. Mm-hmm. Come on, parents. Those are, those are Yeah, everybody's watching out for everybody else's kids. Yeah. And it's like, now we wouldn't do that. Yeah. It's my kid or it's not my kid. And yeah. we lost something with that. Yeah, for sure. I know we're running out of time. <laughs> there were at least three more things I want to ask you about. I do want to end up with belongingness because I know that's your thing. But before we get there, I wonder if we can so briefly talk about volunteering because I really hadn't thought about this at all before I started researching this episode and how otherness can be kind of produced through volunteering because if we don't see the people we're volunteering for as other then it wouldn't be called volunteering. <laughs> it would just be called working together or <laughs> something like that. Is there a way to volunteer? And, and you know, often parents are bringing their kids along with volunteering and trying to instill good values in them through doing this, which is why I'm so keen to ask the question. Is there a place for volunteering in the way we raise our children? And if so, how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't other the people who are on the receiving end of it? No, I think these are, again, complicated questions. And I love them. So partially volunteering can set up a thing of othering and it also can set up a thing or amplify one's station in terms of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go help these people. Yeah. And it's optional. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, the people who live, my, my daughter was in Nicaragua and uh, there was some kind of natural disaster and literally bodies were being floating down the street and I was talking to her and I was saying, you know, you got to come home. And she said, the people who are here can't leave. Yeah. They don't have that available to them. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but they're not majority. <laughs> you said, darn it, I didn't mean to teach you that well. <laughs> and so part of being vulnerable is giving up that capacity to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in this. This is my thing. I'm committed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I'll do and what's going to be asked of me, but I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, though, I would say, give what you can. Because sometimes people can't give everything for whatever reason. But then also try to learn from it. And so, you know, as I say, don't make the perfect enemy of the good, mm-hmm. but try to find those spaces where people can be more engaged, more vulnerable, where the tables are turned. So, for example, my sister who taught children in Detroit who were called ungraded, there were special needs children, what we call them today, she would go to houses in Detroit in the wintertime and they have holes in the side of the house. And, you know, frankly, there might be roaches crawling around. And she said, when people would offer her something like a glass of water that her roast just crawled out of, she would take it, mm-hmm. you know, because it was important for all of us to contribute. And it's also important for us to have contribute from accept things from other people. Mm-hmm. So being able to give is actually in a sense of blessing or a privilege. And I say to my children that uh, they're not kids anymore, but you can't totally uh, disown their privilege. You know, you've gone, to, my kids have gone to fancy schools and, both their parents are college professors. They never went hungry. And that's their, their privilege. Mm-hmm. They're more than middle class, right? And I said, you know, you can't just abandon that. You know, you could actually give away all your money. You still have the education. You still have... The thing is, what do you do with that privilege? Mm-hmm. The Greeks have that the story of the golden bow, where this golden... The gods give the king and queen this golden bowl and it produces all of this thing, all this abundance. And they're entrusted with it, but it's not there. It's a, they're sharing with the people and the community and the nation thrives. At the point that they think is theirs and they stop sharing, everything goes bad, hmm. right? So part of it is, do we see ourselves in relationship and uh, do we hoard or do we really share? Do we keep things flowing? And volunteering can help in that. It's the first mm-hmm. step. It's not the last step. But you mentioned earlier about the person outside of a supermarket and do you give them a banana? If the person's hungry, you might say that banana helped. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about it, you might say, well, this person, okay, this person now, but the thousands of people who need banana, I didn't change the structure. So I could, you know, start, do what you can. And John Rawls has this thing between what's reasonable and what's rational. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same. And we conflate them. And he's saying, what's rational? In, the, in terms of schools, he says, what's rational? What's good for me and my family? Mm-hmm. What's reasonable is what's good for society. Mm-hmm. And they don't always come together neatly. We should try to bring them together, but not all the time. So it's rational for me to want my daughter to come home from a terrible situation. Someone might say it's not reasonable. She has skills or whatever. We have to sort of deal with these complexities and not just complexity in other people, complexities within ourselves. We're internally conflicted and certainly helping, trying to help our children navigate that and respecting others as they try to navigate it. 
So I don't know if there's an answer in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is. I mean, it's about giving as much agency as possible, right? Granting agency. I I don't know if if even that's the right word because it assumes there's somebody there to grant the agency, but (laughs) allowing for another person's agency while also having the freedom to make a mistake if you need to make a mistake and uh, while giving what you can as as much as you can. I think that's right. I think recognizing from my perspective that even though we can't always live it or you they were profoundly spiritually interconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes to belongingness, right? Which is where I wanted to end up with this. And I don't know if you want to back up and share your, your chart with <laughs> those who can see it. Your Othering and Belonging Institute. I can't see the small type at the bottom, but I assume it's a URL. <laughs> Otheringandbelonging.berkeley.edu, something yeah. like that. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. So do you want to give us in give us your life's work in a two-minute spiel? <laughs> yeah. What is belonging and building on what we've talked about so far? What can we do as parents to build towards it? Well, again, I think our belonging... You know, you think about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And he said, the first need is food. The second need is security. The third need is belonging. Mm -hmm. Some of his uh, students now would say he got it wrong Mm. as an order that the first need is belonging. Hmm. If you don't belong, you don't get food. If you don't belong, you don't get security. None of us are Mm self-made. We literally are part of each other. And I think one of the most extreme negative things that comes out of Western society is this notion that we're separate. And there's multiple separations. We're separate from each other. We're separate from the earth. We're separate from nature. We're separate from the divine. And in that separation, there's also fear and anxiety. So therefore, things that we're separate from, we feel like we have to control, we have to dominate. And so that's our relationship with nature. It's like nature's there to be exploited. And we talk about in terms of self-preservation as if we can preserve ourselves and nature not exist. Mm-hmm. It's a contradiction. So belonging is start off by acknowledging that we're deeply connected to each other, deeply interconnected. And the right connection is what we're actually trying to get to. So the slave master and the slave person is also connected. The abusive husband and the battered wife also connected. So it's not just connection. It's the right kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Connection that's animated at least by our shared vulnerability, by our shared need of each other, by our shared rush to the grave. In the case of you dealing with children, by shared love of our children. Mm-hmm. And then how do we keep amplifying that? And belonging also then calls into a kind of agency because it's based on the notion of we co-create the world in which we live. It's not ours, it's not yours, and it's not even just human. We're all part of it, we all have a part of it. And part of the part of it, we will never fully understand. And that's in some ways where spirituality or religion comes into place. We call to do things that don't make sense, that we can't explain. And yet, in my sense, that's what makes us really alive and human. So belonging is closely associated with love and caring both inside and outside. So, yeah, I say the antidote for othering is not saving but belonging. Yeah. It's a process. It's not something that we arrive at. So some people would say, can't happen, right? But it can be what Bernstein calls a regulative ideal. It actually tells us, it organizes our behavior, it organizes our ethics, it organizes our life, even if we can't achieve it. My father's a Christian minister, so most Christians will say they can't live exemplary lives of Jesus. 
Most Muslims would say they can't live the exemplary life of Muhammad. Most Buddhists would say they can't live the exemplary But it orients them in a certain way. Yeah, you still try, right? <laughs> the belonging does. It orients us yeah. in a certain way. In a world, not just in a country or in our neighborhood, but in a world. We're in this together. And the coronavirus is such a powerful example that we are interconnected and that what I do affects you and what you do affects me. And so people who think that my freedom, somebody's telling me I can't go outside, how dare they? You know, it's my body. Maybe it's your body, but, it's, but your body affects other bodies. Mm-hmm. We are connected and it's not an abstract. And what the novel coronavirus says is that, yes, take me from body to body. This is how I get around. I can't walk by myself. I need you, human, to take me from body to body. And we're doing an amazing job. <laughs> Yes, we are. <laughs> we stop doing it. It feels bad, right? It's like, yeah. But how do we actually hold that in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, a slightly depressing note to end on, but overall, a fabulously uplifting episode, I think. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your life's work with us and really helping us to get some tools to move beyond this kind of feeling of paralysis. Well, I don't know what to do to think about how we can create this society that where, where people do belong, where everybody has the right to belong, where everybody feels like they do belong. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for your work. Thank you. And so I do want to give a hat tip to Brian Stout, who introduced us. And I have to say that in some ways that talking with you is worse than talking with him, because when I talk with him, I come out with this massive list of things I now have to go and read. And I think my list with you was even longer. (laughs) But uh, I will put a full list of references, as many of them as I can track down and that I caught on the episode page, and as well as links to Dr. Powell's book, Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Conceptions of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society, a link to the Othering and Belonging Institute that Dr. Powell leads, and the Institute's podcast as well. They have a podcast called Who Belongs? And all of those resources can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash othering. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.